Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. You remember some time ago, was it just last year that we had a capital campaign? I don't know. And the announcement of that, I'm sure it, there were like, there were shockwaves felt across the congregation as we all thought, oh shoot, what does this mean for my money? And yet, there was preaching that we listened to, there was the ministry of God's word proclaimed to us, and in the end, you remember what happened? You remember the day when we all marched down the aisle and made our commitments and what a wonderful thing God did through each of us giving some sacrifice, making some sacrifice to him in that time. And we were inspired to do that, strengthened to do it by his word. That's what we're going to turn to now. If you're like me, you, you, you hear the word evangelism and you are very aware of your failures. You hear these commitments and you think, oh man, what will have to change in my life in order for me to be faithful in this way? And maybe you tremble in your boots as you think of that cost to you. Well, don't forget the capital campaign and the great work God is, has done and is prepared again to do through the power of his word. Let's turn, turn to his word now. John chapter 4. Verses 27 to 42. This is God's word and it is eternally true. At this point, his disciples, Jesus' disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say... There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of God, the Lord. 
Well, this evening, we will focus our attention on the second half of verse 35, where Jesus says that we are to lift up our eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Here we find a command of our Lord to his disciples, given in the context of a well-known encounter between Jesus and the woman, the Samaritan woman, at the well. At that time, Jesus and his disciples were journeying through Samaria on their way to Galilee. They were weary from their travel, and so they stopped at Sychar for refreshment. The disciples go out in, or go into the city to buy food while their master awaits their return at Jacob's well. Well, there at Jacob's well is a Samaritan woman who's drawing water. It's Jesus, being tired and thirsty from his journey, asks her to draw him some water. The woman is startled by Jesus' request because he's a Jew. And in verse 9 of this chapter, it says, And Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and they hated the Samaritans for good reason. They used to be united together as one people, Jews. But following the reign of King Solomon, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes, kingdom of Israel, with its capital, Samaria, and the kingdom of Judah, made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, with its capital, Jerusalem, the holy city. Immediately after this division between these two groups, Jeroboam, the king of the northern tribes, changed the place of worship for his people, the northern kingdom, by setting up counterfeit and idolatrous places of worship, unauthorized places of worship. And so the Jews, the the people of Judah, the keepers of the true religion, hated the Samaritans ever after because they were idolaters, corruptors of worship. There was nothing more important to God's people than the temple. The temple was where God said he would dwell. And that was the one place that all Jews were to come to worship him. They hated their northern cousins, their neighbors, because they had corrupted this. And that fight extended even to Jesus' day. That's part of what Jesus and the woman debated at the well. Where is the right place to worship? Well, also then later, after this, or after the kingdoms were split up, the kingdom of Israel fell to the invading Assyrians. And they began in uh, in that time to intermarry themselves with the Assyrians. And this was contrary to God's word. And because of this, the Jews... The Judeans considered the Samaritans as dogs or half-breeds. They were a stain upon the race. That's another reason they hated them. Then also, when the Jews were returning from captivity in Babylon, the Samaritans opposed their efforts to rebuild Jerusalem. So, these were not friends. They were considered enemies. There was more than enough reason for them to be at the very least, dismissive of the Samaritans if they were to encounter them, like Jesus did at the well. If a Jew met a Samaritan at a well, it's not likely that he would have taken anything like Jesus' special interest in this woman. And so this Samaritan woman was surprised, we see, when Jesus asked her for help and placed himself in her debt. Jesus takes advantage of this surprise. 
and he turns the conversation in a spiritual direction. He says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And this living water would become for you a well of water springing up to eternal life. What transpires in this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman makes for a fascinating study in the art of evangelism, the art of soul work, of missions. And hopefully in the future we'll have time to look at it from that perspective and to learn Jesus' own techniques and methods for engaging with people. But our purpose here tonight is not to talk tactics or methods or tradecraft. Before we can do that, we must deal with something much more fundamental. Methods are one thing, and they're very important, but for methods to be useful to us, we must first desire to use them. And I'm afraid that we don't. There is no use discussing the how-tos of evangelism until we first deal with the why-we-don'ts. What transpired after Christ's conversation with the woman helps explain your and mine unwillingness to give ourselves to this work of evangelism here in Bloomington. When Christ's disciples came back from their trip to the city, it's clear that they did not appreciate the significance of what Jesus was doing here. They were all of them amazed, even though none of them dared say so, to find Jesus spending his time conversing with a Samaritan woman. What does their surprise tell us? Well, it reveals their ignorance of the scope of their master's mission. Had they found their master engaged in a discussion with a Hebrew, then no doubt they would have seen it as an appropriate, as they would seen this as appropriate to his appointed ministry. His ministry to God's people Israel, to them. But Jesus' ministry was not limited only to the lost sheep of Israel, not in an ultimate sense anyway. It was to extend beyond Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth, even to Bloomington. As the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, that is, the whole Gentile world. Jesus Christ came to be the Savior, not just of the Jews, but also of the Gentile nations, a truth Christ's disciples at that point could not comprehend or appreciate. They were still in their pre-empowered state, in their natural condition prior to the time when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them and gave them a sense of themselves, a sense of Christ's mission, a sense of its scope, a sense of their authority, a sense of their power in Christ to proclaim his gospel. Here they are still very much like you and me, very much natural men thinking their natural thoughts and unable to appreciate what Jesus was spending his time for, what he was giving himself to. And so as they watched their master conversing spiritually with a Samaritan, it bewildered them, and they considered it nothing but a distraction from the mission-critical work of the moment, which was what? Filling their bellies. 
rejuvenating themselves for the trip to where they really were headed, to Galilee. And they urge Jesus to come, have him eat with us, Jesus. And he, he responds saying, no, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so they then enter into a, a discussion among themselves. Nobody brought food to him, did they? What's he talking about? No, says Jesus, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So here, by his response, Jesus is defending his conversation with this woman on the basis that it is in fulfillment of God's work which he has appointed him to, f- to accomplish. And what? That it is more satisfying to him than any meal could be. Now, it's clear from what follows that Christ desires his disciples, and by extension you and me, to take the same interest and pleasure and satisfaction and joy in missionary endeavors as he does. Because he goes on to exhort them, saying in verse 35, Do you not say that there are four months and then come the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. This moment is ripe, and you see none of it. This command is a kind of rebuke for the disciples' faithlessness, sluggishness, slothfulness. What he's saying to them is, brothers, here is where God has put us at this moment, and so this too is our field. And, my dis- and, and, and if you would only take notice of it, as I do, you would see that this moment is ripe, that these people are ready and willing to receive the good news of my gospel. How ripe and ready was this moment? Well, we see that the woman is so amazed and, and convinced by what she has received from Jesus that she goes home and tells everyone about her encounter with him. Many were so ready, just on the basis of her testimony alone, they were so ripe, such low-hanging fruit, that they believed because, he, he, because she told them that she met a man who told her about everything she had ever done. That's how ripe for the picking these people were. And then many more of them believed also once they had come and heard Christ speak for themselves. A very great harvest of souls was reaped from among the Samaritans in those two days. Now, I ask you, could it be true here? Could this come true in Bloomington at this time, in this year? Is Bloomington less likely a place for Christ's gospel to flourish and bear fruit? Of course, you know the answer has to be no. You have to say no. At least we have no reason, as far as we can tell, to to assume that it would be different than Samaria. Consider the similarities between these places. Bloomington and Samaria are both full of false worship. Both are full of wickedness and unbelief. Women who have known five husbands or six husbands or whatever the total was. 
Both are full of those who oppose God's people and refuse to the, the command to come up to Jerusalem to worship, to join us here, to join Christ's church, and to enter into worship with his people. And yet Christ looked upon that, that field, which is so similar to our field, and he saw a field that belonged to him and that was ripe for harvest. So too he commands us to look on this field of Bloomington and see the same. So if Bloomington and Samaria are as alike as this, how much like Christ's disciples are we? If Bloomington and Samaria are similar places and are to be viewed in the same way, how much like Christ's disciples in their pre-empowered state are you and I? Is our faith for working in the field of Bloomington and Ellettsville and the surrounding counties any greater than theirs was for Samaria? Wasn't Samaria to them as Bloomington is to us? A place to be tolerated, a place to be born with, a place to be patiently endured as we pass on our way to a better country, Oh, sure, it's a field, but it, it's a field that's so hard, so hard and full of ungodly rocks and stones that there is really no hope or use of us trying to plant in it. There's no, no, there's no use tending it and watering it. There's certainly no hope of us ever reaping a harvest like this one, like Christ did in Samaria here. Isn't this what we think? I mean, really. Isn't this what we think about our city? Well, insofar as we think like Christ's disciples did on that day, we stand in as much need of his correction, of his instruction. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest is a command that applies equally well to us as it did to the disciples. I see that there are two parts to this command. First of all, there is what Christ commanded his disciples to do, that they were to lift up their eyes and look on the fields. And there's secondly, that, uh, the second part of the command is that what they were to see in their looking, what they were, how they were to see as they looked. They were to see fields that were white or ready to be harvested. Both of these parts, aspects of this command, present a direct challenge to us today. Let's look, first of all, at the first part. Christ commands us to lift up our eyes and look on the fields. How is this instruction helpful to us, brothers and sisters? Well, forget looking upon the field in any particular way for a moment, whether you should look optimistically or pessimistically about Bloomington. And just consider the, 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 fact, the question, do we look? Do we look on Bloomington? How many of us know anybody locally outside of this church? Or how, how many do we know? How many of your neighbors and co-workers or classmates have you developed a meaningful relationship with how many of us live, as the disciples would have preferred to live, blissfully ignorant 
of the Samaritans around us. Most of us, I think, most of us spend our lives looking to ourselves, our own homes, our own church relationships, our own work here in the church, all the while blind, closed off, insulated from the people who live all around us here in this town. We need to hear this command and begin to lift up our eyes and look on the field. And not just look, but look with a sense of purpose, a sense of responsibility, a sense of obligation. Maybe there, maybe there are some of us who are extroverted and do know people and are gregarious and like people in general and, and, and know a whole bunch of folks here in Bloomington. And yet fail to fulfill this command because they don't look on those relationships, on this city, as a field. They look, they know, they have knowledge of, they're aware of, but not in the sense Christ is commanding. They don't see all of these relationships in their life as their mission field. Do you faithfully tend the relationships you have with outsiders with an eye to the salvation of their souls? If not, then you're not obeying this command any more than the fearful introverted types like me. Christ's command is not just to look, but to look on the field. We're to look on our community here, to look on Bloomington, and the surrounding area, as if in the same way, with the same intent and purpose as any missionary looks on Africa. We're to look on our community here as a missionary looks on his mission field. Bloomington, too, is Christ's field. I I remember what Abraham Kuyper is famous, most famous probably forever saying, that there is not one square inch in the whole dominion of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Bloomington belongs to Jesus Christ. This is His field. We are commanded to lift up our eyes and to look upon it, brothers and sisters. We're commanded to look upon it and not just look but to see it as our mission field. This is where faithfulness in this work of evangelism begins. There will be no progress until we first begin to look and to consider that this, where God has put us, is our mission field. When the landowner comes back, will we have any fruit to show him? any produce that we've brought into his storehouse to safe to answer for. We need to look, we need to lift up our eyes and look on Christ's field here. Secondly, Christ commands us in our looking on the field to see that it is white and ready for harvest. Sometimes we do look on the field of Bloomington and Ellettsville, but we do so in unbelief. 
We look on our neighbors, on the university, on the Herald Times, on the farmer's market, on the restaurants, on the public square, just so that we can remember why it is we insulate ourselves and, and circle the wagons and, and buckle down through the, through the storm. You know, things are getting bad out there. And yet Christ looks on the same field as we do, and he sees a very different scenario. He sees and would have you and I see his field white and ready for harvest. Jesus does not command us to look on the field smugly. He does not command us to look censoriously on the field. He does not command us to look dismissively on the field of Bloomington unbelievingly. God is, by the way, God is not give all of these things I think are the, are the negative fruit of a positive. God has given us a great gift in this church, if not discernment, then at least an appreciation for it, right? We want discernment, we want to value it, we want to exercise it, grow in it, practice it. That's excellent. But he has not given us discernment so that the better to eat you with, <laughs> the better to look on our friends and neighbors and co-workers and to despise them and to feel smug about ourselves or to remember why we don't mix with them. That's not why that gift was given. Why would God give us a gift of discernment or an appreciation for it? The better to what? The better to love our neighbors. To love them with more skill. To love them more accurately. To love them well. To help them. To see them accurately. Not so that we can spend it on ourselves and our own pleasures. If that's why God has given us discernment, then it's of no use. It's to our own corruption and destruction and judgment. No, he's given it to us so that we would spend it on our neighbors in love. God calls us to look on his field of Bloomington and to be optimistic about our chances here. He calls us to look believingly on the field. Opportunities abound to talk to people, to engage them, to deal with their souls, to tell them about the Lord. But we are defeated before we ever begin if we do not look and see a field that is ripe for the harvest. What is faith? I wish I had Brian Bailey used to have a piece of candy he'd throw, throw to somebody who'd get the right answer. I wish I had a piece of candy. Anybody have a piece of candy? Oh, you already do, Amos? <laughs> Does any, seriously, okay, a piece of candy. Bring it up here quickly. A piece of candy to any child under 12. Any child under 12 who can tell me what the Bible's definition of faith is. What does the Bible say faith is? Anybody quote Hebrews 11.1? 1? 
Any child under 12? Oh, dear. Any child over 12? <laughs> Colin, do you know it? <laughs> Good answer, but it's not Hebrews 11.1. 1. Does anybody want this piece of candy? Any adult? Hold on, there's a child with her hand up. Oh, oh, she wants the candy. <laughs> Alex, what is it? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Faith is seeing what God sees and says is there. Faith is seeing what God says is there. Even though you don't see it yourself. What has God proclaimed to be true of this city? That it is a field, ripe, ready, white, unto harvest. If we get a hold of this truth and become convinced of it, how will we begin to live? What would change about your life? What habits would you lose and give up? What new habits would you form? What would you begin to do? Love Bloomington is not meant to be a guilt trip. I do not want us to go from here and, and, and say it to ourselves, oh, well, you know, we're not good at evangelism, but at least we all feel bad about it. There is no use to that. What we want is action. What action requires is faith. We want to repent. There's another way of saying it. We want to repent, really. We want to, take, we want to turn from our sin, from our self-love, from our unbelief, and begin to take steps in a direction of godliness, of holiness, of love. What would that look like for us? What would it look like if we began to take steps in this direction to become evangelistic? Where'd that bulletin go? You can see it there in your bulletin. Those simple commitments is what it would be, look like to begin to do this work. You see those commitments, the household commitments there? That's what it looks like to begin to do evangelism. Don't look at that and say, oh, that's so hard. Look at that and say, can I possibly do less than this? It's doable. All those things are doable. They're especially doable because God has formed us generally into households or into groups of people, into small groups. He has given us strength in each other. And we can accomplish these simple things. It will require forming new habits. It will require stretching our muscles, taking some risks. We've taken risks before. We've made changes before as a church. God has always been faithful. God has always blessed our efforts. He'll do so here as well. 
Before we go to a time of testimonies, I want to deal with one objection that may be going through some of your heads as you listen to this. That objection is, but Pastor Killingsworth, do you know how busy my life is already? Do you know how much work it is for me to just stay on top of, not even stay on top of, but to just deal with the responsibilities God has already placed upon me in my life? My kids, my husband, my home, I can't even keep up with my home. And now you want to add to my burden. Now Now you have this campaign which is only seeking to make our life more difficult. Okay, so we're self-interested. I'm going to appeal to our self-interest for a moment. Imagine your children growing up, and they're watching you. They don't miss anything, right, Tim? And that you teach them about the Bible... You teach them to pray, you teach them to love worship, you teach them all the right things, you bring them every time the the doors of the church are open, and yet, you do not talk to your neighbors, and when you do talk to your neighbors, you never ever mention the name of Jesus, the hope of the gospel for them as sinners, what will become of your children? What will become of our children? Well, they'll either become more smug and more proud and more self-assured than us, and this church will die. Or, they'll be more honest, and they'll just say, well, that doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. I'm out of here. It doesn't mean anything. That's, that's, that's true. Until we begin to have faith, to speak to our neighbors about Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm preaching to myself. I am, I am worse at this than you. Absolutely awful. But I'm scaring myself, okay? If, if we do not begin to speak to our neighbors about Jesus, then what is true about our faith? Is it real? Do we have it? Is it there? Brothers and sisters, the God who cannot lie has told us that we are to lift up our eyes and to look on his field and that we are to see them as ripe and ready for harvest. Is Bloomington ripe unto harvest? If the fields are not white and ready for harvest, then there is no accounting for you and me. Where did we come from? We're growing in the same field as anybody else. Here we are, after all. Where did we come from? Where did the love that God has put in your heart for him come from? Are you any more worthy? Were you any more cooperative as far as soil goes? Were you enriched somehow in yourself to be receptive to the seed of God's word working in your life, then your neighbor is? No. 
God has performed mighty things for us. We have every reason to believe, based on our own selves and our knowledge of ourselves, that that word that he has put in our hearts can transform our neighbors and our city, the university, the restaurants, the newspaper, the whole, the whole thing. God's word is powerful. With that in mind, I want to draw our attention um, to Psalm 51 and this next segment in our service this evening called Such Were Some of You. You know that statement of Paul? Such were some of you, but you were washed. So after listing all the, the sins common to man, he says, and such were some of you. We need to remember who we were so that we will begin to have faith as we see what God can do. Psalm 51, you know this first line very well. David prays, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. What does he say immediately following that? Once he's, he's, he's praying to have God restore to him the joy of salvation, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. 